Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Up next, guys, we're going to go ahead and jump into our panel discussion for tonight, which is going to be awesome. First up, I want to kind of bring Maggie on the screen and then allow Maggie to introduce the rest of her team. And Maggie, I would love to just kind of hear. Let me see if I can get everyone. Let's see. I think I got the RT spotlighted. Let's see. One, two, three, four. I think I got everybody, right? I didn't miss anybody. And let me add Brittany. Let's see. So I would love to kind of, Maggie, if you don't mind, just say hello to the Soul Thursdays audience. Introduce yourself. Let us know who you are, where you're located. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And I would love for you to just kind of introduce or just kind of, you know, you know, give the rest of the team a chance to kind of introduce themselves and tell us about them. Sure. Hello. Uh, my name is Maggie Kinsella. I am the Director of Operations for Coyote Cannabis Corporation. We are in the licensing process in Massachusetts for a Tier 1 cultivation and a product manufacturing facility. So we'll specialize in hash rosin. Um, but we have a positive impact plan that we um, have, need to fulfill actionable items that um, impact communities disproportionately hit by prohibition. And I think prison reform is definitely one of those um, areas that we don't talk about enough um, and the criminalization of cannabis use and the people that are still being affected by it. So um, I did this event, Breaking the Cycle, and um, I invited Artie and Andy and Kyle. I know Kyle from the cannabis industry. He runs the Summit Lounge, which is a private membership lounge that allows cannabis consumption in Western Mass. Um, I found Artie Finn searching for organizations. Um, she's with APDS. Um, so I'll let her talk about what she does. And then she introduced me to her cousin, Andy, um, who uh, also works with currently incarcerated individuals. So I will let them take it away. Awesome. Awesome. Next up, who wants to go next, Andrew or Artie? Go ahead, Artie. All right, I'll start. Uh, hi, I'm Artie Finn. I'm the co-founder and chief strategy officer for an organization called APDS. We provide uh, pathways to living wage employment for folks who are justice impacted. We do that by providing technology, so secure tablets. Uh, we provide content. There's a tablet. Uh, content, and then also data. And we take those three things uh, and we sell our solution to departments of corrections, jails, parole, probation, alternatives to incarceration to bring really um, an opportunity for folks to turn their lives around. Awesome. I'll turn it to Andy. I'll pass it around. He can introduce himself. Thank you, Artie. Um, I'm Andy Klein. Uh, for the last 13 years, I've been um, contracted by the Department of Justice to provide technical assistance to prison and jail drug treatment programs. This is a, a federal program uh, that was started last century. 
when as a result of Nixon's war on drugs, we found that the majority of realized that the majority of people in prison in this country had substance use disorder problems, were arrested for drug offenses, and they started to throw some money at it to encourage prisons and jails to do drug treatment. So 40 years later, we're still encouraging prison and jails to do something about drug treatment. Um, and uh, um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Awesome. Awesome. Up next, Kyle. Hi. Uh, yeah. So I'm um, Kyle Moon. Uh, I own a cultivation in Maine, which we're a registered caregiver. Um, so we provide medical cannabis to patients. Um, and then I also own the Summit Private Lounge in uh, Worcester, where we um, it's a private membership association. We don't provide cannabis, but we provide a safe place for medical patients or recreational consumers to consume that. And uh, I'm also a person in long term recovery. So I don't smoke or consume cannabis, um, but I'm, I'm passionate about it. Um, I got sober in uh, 2013 after being released from, um, yeah, Worcester County, and um, yeah, started started my journey of recovery and life. Awesome, awesome! Thank you guys for the intros. And you know, one thing I love about the intros is having had a chance to research and prepare for this show. I had no idea how complicated this topic was. And I remember when I sat down first with Maggie and she just started just talking and sharing so much. So what we're going to do is back up a little bit and we're just going to kind of start with the basics. And then what we're going to do is we're going to start with this segment one, which is really going to be about the cannabis industry. And then what we're going to do is dig into some of the very exciting and passionate work that you all are doing. That makes me very excited because when I begin to see how complex it is, some of these terms, such as these um I love these terms, justice, justice, impacted individuals, in addition to terms like substance use disorder, things that just really aren't a part of everyday conversations. Well, tonight we're going to get a chance to make these topics a part of everyday conversations. But before we get there, I would like to just kind of start with Maggie and anyone else who would like to jump in. Maggie, feel free to kind of, you know, if you work with the team before. So if you know that they can speak on the topic, just feel free to kind of pivot. But. Maggie, do you mind just kind of giving us an overview of the current state of the cannabis industry, you know, and what's happening? What are the trends? I mean, you are up in Boston and I've learned that Boston is kind of maybe not leading, but, you know, somewhat progressive in the trends in the cannabis industry. Give us a backdrop. What's going on? Well, the industry is definitely growing. Um, I think we are reaching a point where oh, my camera's glitching. I'll shut that off. Um, we're reaching a point where um, companies are, some are actually starting to close. Um, the profit margins are shrinking, prices are dropping. Um, and I'm expecting it to grow a lot more, even with, you know, the unfortunate closings. Um, but there's things like flour that were really popular at the beginning and still are um, pre-rolls. Um, concentrates are definitely on the come up. The hash rosin and the solventless products that aren't using, you know, any uh, ethanol or butene or any anything like that um, leave more to what the plant has to offer. So we really want to promote um, as much of the plant benefit as possible. Um, I think that is, you know, something that people are really starting to get onto. So I'm excited about that. Um, edibles is always a big thing, although the trends on what edibles are popular um, is really interesting. Like gummies are oversaturated, but people get them. So it's a, a 
it's interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to see it grow. I have plenty of complaints um, and things that we need to fix, but <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that's like a short answer, the current state. Yeah. I think it's, can I? Yeah. Go yeah. Ahead, Kyle. yeah I, th- I think what Maggie's trying to really illustrate is like this transition from like a newer market, everyone's trying to figure it out to more established, right. Where, we're transitioning away from like that startup phase to weeding out a lot of the non-compete startups, if that makes sense. So there's more economic opportunity for those that have been able to stick with it. And it's, it's interesting watching it like transition, you know, the lounge was open before the first dispensary, we kind of snuck in a loophole. So it's, it's, it's good to see, like, it's interesting to see how it transitioned from primarily like black market, original market, whatever you want to call it, right. To this, a stat to this like startup legalization to established market and see how everything works together. It's, it's, it's a really interesting process. I'm, I'm glad that I got to witness it like firsthand. Yeah. You know, it's not often you get a chance to see a new industry or market kind of start, right? For example, I'm curious about, you know, I'm down here in Georgia and Georgia, you know, it's been seven years trying to figure out what it's going to do. And just now within the next two months, or they're going to start issuing the first, um, medical marijuana cards. And it's kind of interesting because I looked it up. I'm like, well, you have to have terminal this or terminal that. So it seems like there's still some work to do. Do you Have you guys seen any, I would say, first mover advantage, disadvantages, for example? Do you think other states may be learning from what other the, the first states have done? What have you guys seen? Yeah, I think um, I think there's both advantages and disadvantages to being first in the industry. Um, you certainly had to have a ton of money the way they set it up. So that was a huge barrier. Um, it's not nearly as expensive to get into most other industries, um, especially the ones that we like to compare it to. <laughs> but um, I I like the quote and I'll I'll say this. I can't remember who said it, but um, it's uh, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. So there's really like two ways to look at it where it might not always be the best to get in first. I've certainly seen my fair share of problems and the stresses that people who hopped in early on um, faced. But um, I think with that being said, that it's definitely beneficial for the states coming on now that they learn as much as they can from the mistakes that were made, the over-regulation and infantilization of adults and the way we consume products um, and try not to parent the industry too much. They really need to like chill on the regulatory framework and how much they think they need to oversee it. Um, so if anything, I hope that that states don't regulate it as harshly. It's not plutonium, even though you'd think it is. And <laughs> It's um yeah so that's you know I'll stop there but <laughs> Kyle do you have any yeah yeah no I I think it's interesting like you're saying I think when when it's so new and no one really knows what's going to happen or what it's about right like they they where where I feel like we're overcautious as a society when we don't really understand stuff we kind of ease on the side of caution and with cannabis it's um it's not needed. Right. And I, and I think over the last five years of legalization in Massachusetts, we've really shown that, that like, you know, when we, when we opened the lounge, it was, it was, um, it was the skies falling. People were acting like it it was all going to collapse. There was going to be drug addicts everywhere. It was just going to be this nightmare. The children were going to be getting high on water street, you know? And, uh, 
after five years, you know, there's, there's four dispensaries within walking distance, you know, there's no negative impact to the community. And in many respects, they're, they're positive, you know, it's, it provides jobs, provides access to, to um, education around like the medical benefits of cannabis, you know, it provides economic opportunities, it provides all these criminal justice, you know, um, where we can right some of these wrongs. Like, you know, and I think that's the mark of a good society when we can look back and say, hey, yeah, we were cautious. Yeah, we wanted to figure it out. We wanted to make sure we do it right. But was that needed? And then how can we adapt? You know, it's the same thing like the war on drugs, where looking back over the last 20 years, like, did it work? I don't know, you know, but we can still write that wrong, you know, and that that's the thing looking forward. So I wish you guys the best of luck, but uh, it's it's a roller coaster for the first couple of years. <laughs> It is politics uh, gets in the way a bit. So just be ready for for that and the and the potential for bureaucratic interference. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, um, well, you got to consumer, can I just add something? Go ahead, Andrew. I was in California a couple of years ago when they just started when they just legalized marijuana. I think they did it before Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. every billboard, I think, in the whole state was advertising some sort of marijuana product. So I was went to uh, out to a restaurant for dinner. And they had marijuana infused cocktails. And I just want to say that was the lousiest drink I ever had. <laughs> so I hope that the industry has advanced beyond uh, uh, marijuana infused alcohol. I love it. I lo- you know, it, I love that because, you know, in the beginning, everybody's so excited. They're probably trying to put marijuana in everything. Right. And, and you say, just stop it. Just just stop. Don't, don't do it. Right. We don't want it. T- yeah. Tell me this. I think you guys are already there. Right. And I really we really appreciate the opinions here at Soul Thursdays because what we try to create is this open environment that's safe, right? A safe environment to kind of talk about these topics, right? And the the audience is typically well behaved, but sometimes they may fact check. But just ignore them. Just focus on me, uh, <laughs> you know. But you know the cool thing. T- let's let's get a little opinionated, right? You know what are some of the biggest face challenges? You you say what are some of the biggest challenges? that you mm-hmm. see facing the cannabis industry. I think, Maggie, you've already kind of referred to government, regulation. Taxes. Taxes. I would love to hear thoughts from everyone. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry to cut you off because I, I, I am so vehemently just, I'm so, my brain just explodes when I think about how, um, how difficult it is to start a business with all of the interference from the regulatory hurdles, but the federal government, the federal government having a patent, um, uh, fact check, it's a, uh, six, six, three, zero, five, zero, seven is the medical application for cannabinoids as a neuroprotectant and, uh, immunosuppressant, I believe. And they simultaneously, the U S government holds this patent and have cannabis in schedule one. It screws up banking. It screws up taxes. People are, the cannabis businesses are paying an exorbitant amount of taxes. It's vomit. It it just, it's, you know, you can see my brain breaking now because it's just so absurd. Like I, you know, so um, I think that the federal government is the biggest problem for the cannabis industry and and their um, unwillingness to move forward with society. Wow. Wow. Anyone else uh, want to get opinionated on some of the biggest challenges facing the industry? Yeah, I mean, I'll take I'll take it. It's um, you know, it's interesting. Right. So we so we so my brother's a registered caregiver in Maine. Right. So we're we're able to sell. We're able to cultivate, uh, produce, sell, manufacture, 
all under one license type. It costs $1,800 a year. You know, uh, we're able to have it at our house. We have a barn, you know, it's, um, and then you come to Massachusetts, right. And it's, you know, so COVID the lounge shut down, right. And, um, we're out of money, right? Like, never mind the government can just shut down your business because whatever reason, right? Never mind that, right? So we look at cultivating cannabis and it's, you know, $500,000 and wait two and a half years to even start the process, you know, to, to be able to cultivate in Massachusetts, you know, and, and it's, and it's, 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 um, so we went to Maine, you know, we took our business and went, went elsewhere to a more favorable regulatory environment, you know, and it's, and it's sad to do that because I grew up in Massachusetts. I love Massachusetts. And, you know, and I think it's opinionated, you know, I, I think there's a um, method to their madness. Right. And, it, and it's all about big, big government, you know, the, the bigger, the regulatory burden, the easier it is for large businesses to get in and exploit that system while small disenfranchised groups have, have, I don't have access to lawyers. I can't fight a town because they said that I'm, I, I can't have my cultivation there. I can't, I can't sue my land, you know, it, you you don't have access to the resources that these bigger government that these bigger entities do and through the regulatory process while they you know it's it's hard right it's hard to criticize so much right but it's it's like you look at the the you know they have the economic um economic opportunity right and and all this stuff for disenfranchised groups right the past recidivism and all this stuff right where they built this into the regulation you know and and you don't you don't see it playing out, right? Like it's all words, but then when the rubber meets the road, there's no actual assistance. The regulations are still the hurdle. You say you're going to help, but you you don't provide the actual help, which is less regulations. You know, a place like Maine, right, where it's eighteen hundred dollars a year, all you need is a state ID, and there's no seed to sale tracking. There's no metrics. There's no regulatory burden, right? Anyone can have a grow. You you own a house. You can have legally for $1,800, you can have up to 30 marijuana plants, and you can sell that to any medical patient or caregiver, right? For $1,800, right? And so everyone has access to that capital. Everyone has an opportunity, an economic opportunity versus Massachusetts, where the regulatory burden prevents individuals from getting into the industry right now. I think Massachusetts did that because they thought the market would flood, you know, and I'm a big believer in the free market where it's, you know, it's my job to remain competitive in a competitive market as an entrepreneur, not the government to protect me. Right. And not the government to protect other businesses. Right. If my product can't stand based on what the consumer wants, it's not the government's job to regulate the industry in such a way, you know, and that, that, that's what it seems like Massachusetts has tried to do. And it's um, in my opinion, it's backfired. You know, I, I know a lot of people who are economic empowerment applicants who are SE applicants, you know, and, and they're, 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 they're dealing with the same things five years later when they were supposed to be the first in the industry. Like Maggie said, we built this into the, Maggie said, we're, people are already closing and these people haven't even opened. And they were supposed to be the first ones in the industry. What happened? You know, and it and it comes down to the 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 regulator, the regulators, you know, and then that's I don't know. I'm, I'm very oh. opinionated about this topic. I have, a, I have a crazy I have a crazy I have a crazy suggestion. Well, give me a second. Um I wanna sorry, Andrew. Um um what we're gonna do is um let me let the audience know how we kind of do um Q and A. 
And since we are recording, what I want to do is kind of hold for a second and allow the um, speakers to speak. And then what we're going to do is transition and let the audience come in. So sorry about that, Andre, I think it was. And what we're going to do is transition to the Q&A shortly. So thank you, Andrew, for uh, the passionate statement, because what it really about is getting information out there. Here at Soul Thursdays, we really are passionate about access to information, enrichment and experiences. And the key thing you guys are talking about is access. And I love the parallel that you guys just gave because it's like a tale of two states. And what happens when you, um, you know, create a low barrier entry, as you say, $1,800. And what happens when you have a high barrier entry, 500K? And then Maggie says, I can't even talk about that crazy patent because it just, you know, what? You got a patent on how a, a plant grows? It's just crazy, right? So it's, 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 compl it's complicated and there's a lot of opportunity to simplify the process. What I want to do is one last question before we transition. What we're going to do is we're going to take a, uh, like a five, 10 minute break and then we're going to, you know, talk to Jamelia. And then what we're going to do is come back and talk about some of the solutions that you guys are proposing, because I'm excited about the solutions, because it begins to help understand why you guys exist in this complicated world and beginning to provide solutions in what's unnecessarily complicated. So backdrop, some of the people listening are going to listen to this replay. They're curious. They're thinking about, hey, how can I follow the industry? What can I do to kind of get involved? You know, do I need to move to Maine? Should I wait for Georgia to come online? So how can people learn about the different aspects of the cannabis industry, such as cultivating, extraction, distribution, and retail? Maggie, you want to go first and maybe pivot to Kyle or someone else? Um, yeah, really just follow what your state legislators are doing, because as this gets legalized, that's where it starts um, with the individuals writing the rules and then um, making sure that you're following whoever gets put in charge of implementing that. Um, hopefully most states, I know we are, they have a list compiled of companies that are going through the process that you can find and reach out to. There are educational programs um, like Elevate Northeast does programs. Um, there's even Mass Cultivated, who Ryan was another participant in Breaking the Cycle. They do reentry and education um, and help place people into jobs and um, on pathways to ownership through the social equity program. Um, so there's, there's a handful of different ways, um, but I would say just follow what your state is doing and follow where they're um, you know, putting information up about the licensing and companies, companies that are going. Awesome. Awesome. Let's see. Let's see. Maybe get an echo. I'm going to meet Jamelia. Um, thank you for that, Maggie. Kyle, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I would say um, definitely follow what your state's doing there. You know, not, you know, there's always opportunity, right? There's always economic opportunity when a new industry is being founded, you know, whether it's, you know, through different types of ancillary businesses, you know, you don't have to be plant touching. And in that respect, you know, you don't have to follow a lot of the same regulations, you know, so there, there's always economic opportunities. You're just going to be innovative. You're just going to figure it out, you know, and that's really read the regulations, try to understand them, talk with a lot of people in the industry, you know. And just keep your eye on other states, you know, where where there's there's so many states coming online right now with such a wide variety of regulations that there's there's, you know, I'm a big believer, like I said, like, right, like Massachusetts, we couldn't do what we wanted to do. We move four hours north and we can, you know, and that's and that's the type of, you know, mindset that you have to have when you're an entrepreneur that you got to constantly be adapting and constantly figuring out what provides you and your family with the best economic opportunities in the, in the best business sense, you know, and that, and that's, it's just a, it's just a shifting landscape, you know? 
Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Anything, Andrew or Artie, you would like to add to that? I was just going to add. Go ahead. Go ahead, Andy. You go first. I'm just going to say one of the important things of legalization of marijuana, apart from the industry it's created, is it stopped people being arrested for simple possession of marijuana. Um, Because if you look at the war on drugs, it's always been a sham. It's never been going after the big uh, distributors. It's not going after the cartels. It's been it's an excuse to arrest people. And it's been a particularly uh, harmful impact on on um, uh, people of color and in the urban cities. It's an easy arrest. It's a good way to kite up your numbers. Uh, and so uh, obviously there are other ways to do sham arrests, too. But this takes away. I think uh, something that's been really exploited and has really corrupted the criminal justice system and has loaded our prisons and jails uh, with people uh, for marijuana. Uh, and not only do, even if it's a short sentence, people get stuck in a record prison when they get out and they can't escape that even though, even after they're out because that precludes them from having jobs and stuff like that. So it's a very important one of the benefits is the industry, and particularly in the field of corrections, the industry is great because it's starting to hire people. It has a social conscience. It's trying to hire people coming out of jail and prison, and that's wonderful. But also the other end, the other reason we need legalization is marijuana is to stop the phony war on drugs. Awesome. Thank you. Go ahead, Artie. And I was just going to add, I think there's an opportunity for the industry to have an outsized word on criminal justice reform by saying taxes that are redirected from cannabis sales should be put into correctional education. States don't have enough money dedicated to that. Less than 17% of the folks that are incarcerated get any access to programming. So if you want to have, uh, if you want to actually start to regulate the industry, control where the money goes. I love it. I love it. So that's a wrap up of segment one. We're going to do segment two. And in segment two, we're going to really dig into some of the work that Artie, Andrew and Kyle are doing to solve some of the challenges we see in this complex environment. And what we're going to do is just take a segment break. We're going to chat with Jamelia um, briefly. Let's see if we can get that microphone working. How are you doing, Jamelia? Let's see. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here. You know, one of the things that at Soul Thursday is we started getting started You know, it was kind of cool. And, you know, we had friends and family start supporting, but then eventually we started getting sponsors and people supporting us. So Jamelia is one of our early sponsors, and we just want to thank her for being here and supporting the show. But I also want to kind of give an announcement to, you know, the audience is that actually Soul Thursday actually has been the recipient of our first grant. And it has been exciting. I mean, it's almost like, Wow. You know, two and a half years ago, get started. You know, you do the work, you know, you you think about, you know, as Dr. Mimi would say, um, creating this um, social proof or evidence of the work you're doing. And then it's like, you know, the work you're doing is important, but all of a sudden you feel seen. Right. You're like, ah, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys who support Soul Thursdays. Thank you guys for being here two and a half years later. We're still streaming every Thursday. But I wanted to just pause for a second and just kind of have a commercial break with Jamelia because she's one of the entrepreneurs that we work with here at Soul Thursday. And she has a workshop coming up. Jamelia, tell us about your workshop and what's going on. 
Well, it's focusing on helping small business owners or people who want to be small business owners set up their LLC the smart way so they can start building business credit. And it just kind of, I get calls. Last week, I talked to a person every single day, just frustrated about what they're hearing or frustrated with how they set theirs up. And so it's just walking you through that 10-step process so you have no gaps, no fluff, you don't waste any time, but you know what you're doing and you know why you're doing it because a year is going to pass. So if you follow these steps when those year, when that year passed, your company has its own legs and it doesn't have to be tied to your personal money and your personal social security number. Awesome. You know, I remember a few people had approached me about, you know, small business credit and stuff. I'm like, I don't know. That stuff sounds a little too whatever. But I like the way you approach things differently. You essentially say, hey, if you are a person who's passionate about your business, passionate, I call it the soul hustle, right? Where people have a passionate business. Podcasters are passionate about what they do. But, you know, tell us about the people you work with. Are, are they people who just like, hey, I need an LLC, bye? Or are you working with, you know, a different type of people? You know, it's, it's the, I always say it's about, um, for us at 91 Grid, it's about working with small businesses who have a big vision. They tend to be what I call reluctant leaders because they're drawn by that product or that project that they're passionate about. And so it's kind of like um, they have to get it out or they have to help solve that problem. And it kind of pulls them into business. And so they tend to be the last ones to find out about systems and structure because they're so focused on just who they're serving, who they're helping. I mean, even the ones who are selling products, it's serviced for them. So those types of people are my favorite because they're going to give you your money's worth and they're going to give you extra. And they're the people that I think are, I want to pour my time into helping them set themselves up so that they can win different. Don't want them left behind because they care enough to do it right and to give that extra. They usually suffer in the systems though. And so this is one of the first systems that small business owners really need to look at Right. And get those steps right, because once you know what to do, two or three days, you've done the steps. And then now you know what to be doing each month. But it doesn't take you away from the big picture when you understand where it's leading you and how it's going to help you in the future. Help you help your people. I, I love it. You say that they're passionate about the product and their service, but they struggle in the system, a.k.a. the paperwork. So it seems like you help them there. Now, tell us one, one last thing. You have this workshop coming up. I think it's this Saturday, right? And Tamika just shared in the chat how people can follow you and how they can actually sign up and purchase your workshop. The cool thing is only $37. You know, what should they expect, you know, if they, you know, support and join your workshop? And then I one last question I want to hear just about you and even how you got started with 91 Grit. Like, what does that even mean? Let's first, I, I did two questions, one, y'all, so I'm doing too much. First, let's talk about, you know, what should they expect in your workshop? And then we'll talk about 91 Grit. Well, you're going to get the those 10 steps that you need to be following if business credit is a part of your plan. You're also going to find out why it needs to be because setting up the business to get business credit, if you get there to the end and the money has just flowed where you don't need it, that's fine. You still have a strong, solid, professional business that can serve you in other ways. But it's going to deal with the scams. People are getting scammed in lots of different ways. Sometimes the scam is costing them a hundred. Sometimes it's costing them thousands. So we just want to show you exactly what that looks like so you can see it coming a mile away so that your money goes where you want it to go. And then at the end of 
class for a bonus. I'm just going to share what you need to be focusing on for the next six months. It's about simplicity inside of that strategy where you are not overwhelmed with what you're doing. Awesome. Awesome. How did you get started with 91 Grit? And what does that even mean? It's something about 91 days. How did you get started? Where did that inspiration come from? And what is 91 all about? Well, I was, I'm small business raised. So that's the family that I come from. So even when I was getting my college degree, I remember praying not to lose that kind of grit and hustle that you learn by being raised by small business owners and being around them. But the 91 grit is just looking at in a corporate world, they look at things in terms of quarters, quarter one, two, three, and four. But for small business owners, that's not how we think that language is too harsh. It's not an organic decision. So I noticed in talking to creative business people in business, when you change the language, they will embrace what they need. So I look at life at 91 day cycles, which is literally a season. You know, so when you walk through those 91 days, what can you do inside of these 91 days to make it count for your business or for your life? So it lets the small business owner choose a focus instead of trying to solve everything this weekend. You know, for 91 days, I'm going to make it easier for my people to understand what I offer, why it matters and how to take the next step. Now, how you do that, it might be enhancing your website. It might be enhancing your message for social media, but it just lets the the small business owner calm down and just focus on one thing, laser focus on those next 91 days so that the year doesn't pass and you're wondering, what happened? Or I meant to get to this. You're deliberate about it. And the grit comes from small business. After listening to that section that uh, with the cannabis business, I was like, there's no way to do it unless you've got some grit, the ability to stick through the process, to fight for what you believe in, to establish your business the way you really want it established. You've got to be gritty to be able to hold on. So the lifestyle is that this is what we do. This is my business. I'm focused for the next 91 days. Come hell or high water, I will find the solution to get to the next step. That's the lifestyle. Awesome. I love it. 91 grit. You see, there's a question from Andre. Andre, um, go ahead and drop your question in the chat. Thank you, Jamelia, for being here. We're going to go back to our segment two. Y'all feel free to check out the chat, Jamelia. There may be some questions for you. We're going to bring back our esteemed panelists and begin to talk about some of the nuances and the work that they're doing, the grit that they have to begin to establish the org. Excuse me, that's establishes. Y'all know what I mean. The organization. With, where's Andrew? I miss Andrew. There you go. Going to be doing some edit on this one. You know, I, I try to do one take, you know, one mic, one take. That never works. There's always going to be some editing. So don't judge me, y'all. Just realize I'm going to be in a booth later. So anyway, <laughs> OMG. You know, thank you guys for that initial segment, just kind of really getting us grounded and on the same page of the cannabis industry. Because initially, I remember when I was talking to um, Maggie, I was like, I'm so confused, Maggie. You're, you, you know, you opening this dispensary and you're focused on resin, but yet you're doing this education. I'm like, why? And I'm just so confused. Maggie, just get us started before we go to the rest of the group. Tell us about why in Massachusetts, your organization focuses on education and why that's important. Oh, let me help you get unmuted. I, have okay, I think we're good. Thank yeah, you. Go ahead. Um, 
Um, sorry, can you just repeat that last one? I was panicking because I'm like, my mute button, it won't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I turn them off because since we're recording, sometimes I, no, um, I get <laughs> guess the audience um, gets in there. But um, for the audience, let me pause for a second. Um, audience, welcome. Uh, we have a rule here where um, we allow the audience to put um, questions in the chat in real time. And sometimes you'll get, you know, answers. But what we're also going to do is wait for the last um, 10 minutes of the show. And then we may, if we recognize you, unmute you so you can ask questions. That's all dependent on people being well behaved, though. But um, feel free to drop your questions in the chat. If not, wait for the Q&A later. And um, Tamika may help you with that. But going back to you, Maggie, the question was, the complex industry of legal marijuana. And in Boston, you guys have a requirement of education or uh, expectation that you guys provide some sort of give back to the community. Because initially when I saw that you were doing this educational event, breaking a cycle, I was confused. I'm like, why would this up and coming dispensary be doing these educational events? Do you mind sharing with us how that works and um, why that's important? Sure. Um, so in Massachusetts, when they were writing the laws for the cannabis industry, um, they put in certain requirements through the regulations that businesses need to have um, in their application a positive impact plan. And in your positive impact plan, you have to include um, places and organizations that are working in areas of disproportionate impact or working with communities that have been disproportionately impacted by prohibition. Um, and as I kind of mentioned earlier, um, the prison population is the most impacted. For, from my perspective, I think it's the most impacted population by prohibition itself. We criminalized things that should not have been criminalized, including cannabis consumption. And we did it on bad science. We did it using racism. We did it using propaganda. We did it using violence. And we're continuing to use that violence by putting people in cages for using something that is relatively harmless when we compare it. it's not perfect. And, um, you know, I, there are, it's, but it's relatively harmless and we shouldn't be criminalizing any drug use personally, but cannabis is really just one of those that's not only is it medicinally benefit, uh, individuals because it works almost in sync with your endocannabinoid system, which is not something a lot of medical schools talk about. Um, it, it's a resource too when you get away from just the cannabinoid contents. Um, you know, just step aside from THC and CBD and terpenes. Um, you're talking at an industrial level, a resource that is renewable, biodegradable, cleans the oil, uh, cleans the soil, cleans the air. Like, I mean, there's nothing like it really. Um, I mean, there might be, but I'm biased. So, <laughs> um, but. With that being said, kind of back to our positive impact plan, you know, Coyote's not open yet. Um, we're hoping to be open at the end of 2023. But I, I personally come from the advocacy side of things. I was the press secretary for the Massachusetts Cannabis Reform Coalition for uh, three years and a director for a total of five um, before, you know, stepping away and focusing more on, you know, getting into the industry with the product that, you know, my, uh, my person and I grow, Nick, he's the cultivator. Um, and, uh, you know, we teamed up with Blake Mensing and his brother, George Mensing. They are the president and CEO and owners of Coyote Cannabis Co. They liked our product. Um, and so they agreed that we could get started on our positive impact plan with this event and um, just talking about, you know, 
not just cannabis, but incarceration. Um, and it, I got there from learning about the clemency process and also watching Massachusetts just completely fail to live up to its own expectations on things like expungement and, um, you know, giving people a shot at first dibs on licenses who were put in prison um, instead of the corporate MSOs that came in and swept everything up. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I was just appalled at, at not only like, so for example, Illinois, um, I believe it was expunged. Like, I think it was like 800,000 records with like a push of a button. It was, it was an enormous number. And I was like, okay, Massachusetts, like we're the, we're the best. What's going on? Where's our button? Why are we not doing this? And our expungement process itself was very limited. So we've, uh, individuals in the state have been working on, you know, making expungement more accessible, um, opening up, um, people's ability to do it based on certain crimes that they have nonviolent crimes, drug crimes, et cetera. Um, and so the clemency process is, um, like we have like, like you usually hear about the governor can grant clemency, but like we can't do that in Massachusetts. We have a governor's council and they have to make the recommendation to the governor that someone be up for clemency. And the mass parole board has to make the recommendation to the governor's council before the governor's council can make the recommendation to the governor. And so, you know, there's, I think the conversation needs to be had about like, is this system working? Why have we not streamlined it? Like, we have the technology and the ability to not compartmentalize our communication. Um, and I think that it's time to kind of move forward with that. And this, this event was really just, you know, about talking, you know, you know, doing something that is going to hopefully create a positive impact, um, get people access to, um, you know, better care than prison for behavior that, again, I don't think should be criminalized. Um, and then actually like working on is prison even rehabilitating people to begin with. So I think there's a lot to talk about with it. Um, and it's, um, you know, I kind of bounced a little bit back and forth there. So I hope I brought it together. But <laughs> yeah, well, well, thank for that. And what I want to do is next is I want to start with based on Andrew and then go to Artie and then Kyle. And thank you guys for being patient as we begin to build the story, right? As you see the pyramid being built, being built. Oh my goodness, I'm not talking this week. Anyway, <laughs> the thing is, if you don't mind, uh, Andrew, I'm pretty sure you have a lot on your mind because a lot's been said. Um, this segment is entitled "The Challenges of Justice Impacted in Substance Use Disorder." I love those terms, and I would love for you just to kind of share once again a little bit about you and your perspective on these nuances, because what we want to do is get into your book and the work you're doing. But, you know, feel free to just kind of I'm not going to ask you any particular questions. I just want to let you speak. And then, you know, we'll get into the questions later. But, Andrew, you're next. Well, you know, prisons are, have always been misnomers. They, they're called correctional institutions, but they don't correct anybody. Um, and, uh, they, now they're really designed, bottom line is to cage people in security, et cetera. But what we miss the fact is the American prison system and jail system is the largest mental health institutions we have in the country. There are more mentally ill people in our prisons and jails than there are in all the state psychiatric institutions combined. 
Also, uh, people who are under the influence of drugs, jails are now the largest detoxification facilities in the country. A uh, hundred times more people are detoxed in jail than are detoxed in uh, detox centers in the community or in hospital emergency rooms, et cetera. But guess what agencies are not prepared to fulfill either of those missions, mental health or drug detoxification, withdrawal management, or drug treatment, and that's prisons and jails. So you have a huge mismatch. And it would be nice to wage, wage, wave a magic wand and make the prisons and jails you know, disappear, but that's probably not going to happen, at least in my lifetime. Hopefully, some of you younger people might happen in yours. It's not going to happen in mine. But so I think what we've been concentrating on or uh, in the uh, the program I'm working on is if somebody's going to spend and the average prison sentence in this country is three years and the average sentence in jails a lot less than that, we might as well do something with them. Uh, uh, if, if they're going to be detoxed from drugs, let's not kill them on withdrawal mismanagement. Uh, people are dying. If you go to, for the last four years, my daughter and I did a simple thing. Every morning we go to Google News and we type in jail death. And dollars to donuts every day, you'll find three deaths around the country in Google News. And half of them are people withdrawing from drugs and alcohol. Uh, and the coroners and the medical examiners call these natural deaths. Well, it's medical malpractice because they're not given any treatment for withdrawal management. Um, because the jails don't see that as their mission. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's what we've been struggling with. The federal government has a little bit of money. Last year, the Congress appropriated $45 million, which is not that much when you distribute it in all the states and U.S. territories. Uh, we have 3,200 jails in this country. Uh, if, you know, if you look on a pie chart, the prison population People for felonies, you know, the state prisons, what we see about in the movies and stuff. The At any given moment, the majority of people are in state prisons. But if you look, uh, if you look for the whole year, 10 million people cycle through the nation's jails every year. Those are the people come in, they've been arrested, they have drugs in their system, they're in need of withdrawal, they're having a psychotic breakdown. Frequently, they're called because their own parents might call because their kid is out of control and they are desperate because they can't find mental health treatment. So they're hoping that the person will at least be safe and be able to stabilize in jail. And, and that's unfortunately, tragically not true uh, because the jails uh, and the medical system, and I'm, I'm talking too much. I'll end up with one more thing. I'll just say one thing. Um, jails have the, the populations that end up jail, not only do they have substance use disorder, not only they have mental illness to a great degree, uh, they're uh, medically a much more fragile population than the population in the community. They have asthma, they have HIV, uh, they have hepatitis, they have all these things. And yet the medical care in prisons and jails are basically run by for-profit companies that they only make a profit if they fail to deliver medical services. So it's sort of a, uh, it's the reverse of a, it's a business model uh, that mitigates against the delivery of care for prisoners in jails. Uh, 
I'll, I'll shout it for a while. Thanks for that, Andy. <laughs> Next up is Artie. And what I want to do is as we build this pyramid, as you guys may have noticed, is starting with Maggie describing the problem the foundation of this pyramid. And then up next, Andrew begins to describe the more complexity. Next, we have Artie and then Kyle that's going to talk about some of their solutions. Go ahead, Artie. Tell us about your solutions and some of the things that you and your teams are doing to simplify and provide help and solutions. So I think um, Andy said it right. Um, I want to paint the picture of what happens inside a carceral institution if you get any access to programming, it's because you had access to a classroom, but they have to move you into a classroom, which oftentimes is prevented. So when I say less than 17% of folks that we incarcerate in this country, and Kyle knows it intimately, uh, get any access to programming, that's what happens, right? When you go into the classroom, it's basically a one room schoolhouse. And by the way, 68%, almost 80% of the folks we incarcerate in this country end up incarcerated because they don't have a high school diploma or a high school equivalency. And they're the ones that desperately need the education the most. So my company provides access to programming using technology. So we make it ubiquitous for everybody. We provide individualized access because, Calvin, what you need is very different than what Maggie and Kyle need. And then we make it available at scale to every institution. And I know we've been bashing Massachusetts, but I'm actually going to call them out for doing something really good. They're the first state in the country to offer programming to everybody who's incarcerated. And I think that sets the tone. I had another state tell us the other day, we want to be first. Well, Massachusetts beat you to it. So now we've created a system of positivity inside carceral institutions. And that's really what we're trying to perpetuate. And I will say the other big thing about my company is we never charge justice impacted folks and their friends and family for access to our services. So the, the folks that are paying are the departments of corrections, departments of labor, department of education, which is how it should be because corrections historically has been a very exploitative, financially exploitative to people who are least able to pay. And so we are trying to change that entire system. I love it. I love it. Kyle, you're next. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, your spin on this and some of the challenges you see and how your organization is helping. Yeah. So um, hmm, that's a good question, right? Uh, so <laughs> that's a good question. Didn't right? mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we're helping, you know, I, I, I like that we're, we're community space driven in the cannabis space, right? But in terms of criminal justice, you know, so before before we opened the lounge, I worked for DPH in the Office of Youth and Young Adults dealing with uh, substance use disorder. And I was in I pretty much um, we got a SYT grant, a SAMHSA grant to um, build community advisory boards to advise us on our programs and policy. Right. So I pretty much go around the state grab all these young people and be like, how can we help you get sober, right? And then translate that back up to the state level so then we could allocate funding based on where the needs in the community are, you know? And I, and I think, like, you you talked a lot about building this pyramid and, and trying to find solutions to these problems, you know? And it and it's, it's, it's not that there's not enough money, it's the misallocation of the funding, right? And then 
like, you know, already talking about the technology, how, how through, you know, I, I think the big dilemma of our time, right, is, is writing a lot of these wrongs that we can now solve, right, where, where technology allows us an opportunity to get in front of these people and provide them services that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you would have had to hire hundreds of thousands of people across the country to provide these same exact services, right? And it wouldn't have been able to be done on an individual basis. And, and with all my work in the recovery community, it it really takes, you know, just like um, Andy was talking about, you know, the the individual, everyone needs a different level of care. Everyone needs a different pathway to recovery, right? And that, that was the big thing for me, you know, where it's, I'm abstinence-based, right? So I, I don't consume alcohol. I don't consume cannabis, any of that. But that works for me. That might not work for someone else, you know? And 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 with the, the technology, we can provide those individual services to ensure that the individual is getting exactly what they need to get well, you know? And, and I think- I think that's where our country is is shifting, right? Where we're we're realizing that a lot of these old systems, like Maggie was talking about the clemency process. And I'm just sitting here, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like that makes no sense. We have 10 people doing the same job. We can have a computer doing it all, you know? And and I think I think as we start to make that mind shift as a culture and as a society, you know, a lot of the work that Artie's doing and Andy are doing are gonna not only highlight the issues that we have with the prison population and these correctional institutions, but also provide solutions, right? Where it's, you know, where we know everyone's not getting adequate treatment for the, for their, 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 for their ailments. Right. And, and, and how do we best address that is the solution. Right. And we can do that with these individual learning softwares where we can really dig into what that person needs, you know, and provide them the individual services, you know, and, and the and and getting the the institutions that are already spending their money on services that aren't working to spend them on stuff that can work and and capturing that data right and and I think that's what shifts you know in DPH right we we you can't do things on anecdotals right we have to have the data we have to see the results we have to quantify it right and that's how we allocate funding right and where you look at Boston and you're like there's this many people there they need this many services this is what they're telling us they need this is how much funding we allocate greenfield there's this many people this is the services this is what we allocate you know and you really need to dig into that data to provide the trauma informed care for the individual you know and when you can do that over a large scale you get results, you know, and, and I think that's where we're heading. And I, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's thanks to people like Andy and Artie that are, that are doing the work in the prisons, you know, and it's, um, yeah, that's, that's what I got. And awesome. Give that man a podcast. I mean, he is ready. Oh, he is ready. <laughs> you put him on the spot. He will come up with something. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> you know, Andrew, you know, I would like to kind of get your backdrop a little bit. You know, you, you have this book out and, in this book, you begin to kind of talk about some of these nuances. And but I would love to kind of, you know, before we move forward, just tell us a little bit about your book, because there's an opportunity here. Right. The cannabis industry is growing. It's kind of not fully evolved. It hasn't been totally decided which direction it's going to go. But like the lottery, no, it's going to be a lot of money going into it. You know, in your book, you begin to talk about some of these nuances of the justice impact that you uh, individuals and this substance use disorder. Do you mind just telling us what is substance use disorder? And as a researcher, what have you seen and what are some things that we can, you know, find in your book? Well, the, the substance use disorder is just the new name for drug addiction. Uh, it, it's, uh, yes, yeah, so they're different. They're different kinds. There's opiate use disorder, 
there's you know substance, there's alcohol use disorder. It's just a, a new name for the same same thing that we've been dealing with all along. Um, and uh, but one thing I want to say uh, though, Calvin, is no matter what we do in prison and jail, it all fades when people leave. Okay, if there's not aftercare, if there's not continuity care, if they're not people like Kyle or Maggie around to give people jobs. Uh, somebody's in recovery, you can start recovery. Hopefully you can restart them in jail. You can get, you know, get your head in better shape, uh, get some uh, education, learn about things, connect stuff. But if there's nothing waiting for you on the outside, if you have no employment, uh, that's the most important thing. It's not treatment. It's employment. It's stable residency. People are not going to stay sober and clean if they don't have a place to live. If they don't, uh, you know, if they don't have a job or employment, a way, a way to sustain themselves. So, so that's important. But what you're talking about in the book is we realize that here the federal government's giving away money for drug treatment in prisons, jails, and it's available to every state. This year, I think there are two or three states that have rejected the money, not because they don't have drug addicts in their prisons or jail, but they just don't care. Uh, it's not worth the paperwork for them. But I think the real reason is they won't, don't want any accountability. They don't want anybody looking over their shoulder to seeing what's going on in the prisons and jails. And that's what our book did. We looked further into jails. And, you know, people woke up because of George Floyd uh, being killed by police officers and him saying, I can't breathe. Well, people have been saying that who have been dying in jails for years now. And it's starting to come out, but it was it was even more hidden than it was happening on the streets, because in jail, nobody's there to see it. Uh, and even though they have videos, the videos are kept secret. Uh, the 80 percent of the jails are run by sheriffs. Well, who do you think investigates a jail death in a community? The sheriff investigates the jail death. Well, who runs the jail? The sheriff. So he's investigating him or herself. So you've never really had any accountability. And you're beginning to have it now because the Justice Department, not under Trump, but under President Biden, the Civil Rights Division is starting to investigate some of the major scandals. Uh, but people, relatives of people who are dying from mount, uh, uh, mistreatment in jails are not being satisfied with what the sheriffs are doing or their friends, the district attorneys, and they're suing. Uh, there was just a judgment the other day. It was for $8 million uh, for a wrongful death. That's not going to bring back the person who died, tragically. But it's beginning, uh, county commissions are beginning to think, wait a minute, this is very expensive. All these uh, wrongful death suits, uh, you know, if you get them in the pocketbook, they don't, maybe, maybe that will start getting them to do things. The legislature is starting to act. Artie was talking about her tablets being free. The, the, Telephone companies are like the for-profit medical uh, providers in jails. They were charging people uh, $5 for a phone call. For, uh, $15 for a 15-minute phone call. Right. Uh, their tablets, they're charging people uh, to read a book. They're charging them per minute per page, uh, uh, making it. And the reason they get away with that is they give a kickback to the prison or the jail. So there's no incentive for the uh, prison or the jail to have a 
contract with a telephone company and say, no, no, we want the prices to be you know, normal. Uh, we don't want to exploit uh, inmates and their families because they get a percentage of the profit. I mean, the whole system, when you look at it, uh, it's uh, what, what, sketchy at best. Sketchy at best. Uh, I know, Kyle. What, what about your experiences? And I'm well, sure Kyle's going to have an answer. Go ahead, Kyle. I love Kyle. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, so I, so you know, so I, uh, my house was raided in 2011 for cannabis cultivation, and I proceeded. I was, I was pre-trial, so I, I fought my case, right? And and I thank God I had the means to do that, right? And you know, and and just in and out, in and out, in and out, you know, and, and never really understanding. Right. And, and it's, it's shocking to me after looking back that it's like, we take people, you know, we look at the reasons for incarceration and poverty is a huge one, right? We take these people, we put them in this place and then we charge them for all these things that are just, that are, that are ridiculous, you know, and, and we don't provide them any, any, services when they leave, you know, like, like Andy was just talking about, like the housing, the jobs, the careers, like you get put on the street and with the clothes on your back and you're like, all right, go, don't, don't reoffend, you know? And you're just like, how do I do that? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I, I started, I started using narcotics when I was 12 years old and it took me to a place when I was 22, I was in and out of jail five times. I want to say four or five times in almost a year and a half. And and you're and you're sitting there and they're telling me, don't, don't get caught again. Don't, don't reoffend. And I'm like, I don't know how to do anything else. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, you know, but that's well, because we're not providing the services, you know, and it's um and yeah, it, I want to say one thing. Our Just system of measurement of our carceral institutions is completely negative. We measure the fact that how people return to the system, not the success they have upon release. Think well, about they that. They don't get paid if people they don't get paid. Prison. Right? You can't keep the whole system going, you know, and this that I, I, you know, I hate to harp on these these big institutional problems and where we're going as a society. But we're able to look at these things. Who hasn't heard about the prison industrial system? You know what I mean? Private prisons. Like I remember watching the documentaries when I was 12 years old about private prisons and being like, what, that's a thing like they're doing that. No, they're not. And then you actually see it. And now through like podcasts like this through the work that individuals are doing you can actually see that you're not only seeing the detriment to society but you're seeing it through a different lens you know and we're we're able to right those wrongs you know and and you get instead of a private prison where a prison is exploiting people you get to partner with companies like coyote cannabis you get to partner with companies like mine where we can actually impact individuals in a positive way you know and 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 that private that government that blending of private industry and government can go two ways. It can go negatively or it can go positively, you know, and the, and the, and the, the great, the greatness of our time is that we're trying to shift it to the positive. And I think it's really going in that direction. Awesome. Awesome. What we're great... going to do now is kind of, let's, let's just begin to kind of grab some closing statements. Cause I want to do, um, provide opportunity for two things. One is give the audience a chance to ask some questions. There have been a few um, questions in the chat and two, I want to get you guys a chance to wrap up anything that you get in, get a chance to speak on. For example, I know I have canned questions. That's really for me to keep me focused. But at the end of the day, you know what's most important to the work that you do. So um, let's start with Artie and let's go with Maggie. Maggie, I think your camera. Yes, yeah, we lost her. She may be back. Um, but let's start with you, Artie. 
And just, you know, any last words, because what I would like to know, let me restate my question, is how can we in the audience and the people listening support you and the work you do? And any closing statements, anything that you hadn't mentioned, Artie first, then Andrew, Brittany, Kyle and Maggie when she comes back. I think you need to talk to your state legislatures, your governor, anyone who's in policymaking and really advocate for changing corrections from a place of warehousing to a place of true rehabilitation. And when you start to raise the pressure on government, they step up. I'll give another positive example of a state like Tennessee. Uh, I know everyone's going to be shocked on this call. Tennessee has our program in all 95 county jails. And it's through the Tennessee Department of Labor, which is the first Department of Labor in the country to run a reentry program. So, and to Andy's point, they're running it not just inside the jails, but post-release too. That's the kind of thing that you want to elevate to your policymakers and say, how come we're not doing that in our state? Um, so I want to highlight that. I also want to um, take a little uh, shout out to my um, my podcast, Second Chances, uh, where we talk about all these issues. And uh, and thank you, Calvin, for having us. Awesome. Awesome. Make sure you drop in the chat your Second Chances podcast and where we can follow you. Um, Brittany, anything you've been sitting here listening quite patiently. A lot has been said, a lot of passion. You know, it's one thing we're going to have to call instead of the Southern Soul, we just call it passionate. You know, we yeah. are some passionate people. Any thoughts, Brittany, of anything you've heard, observed? Uh, what's going on there with you? Everything has been super informative. And honestly, I love what everyone is doing. Love Kyle's story, just taking trauma to triumph. Um, and just also just the education just around the topic. I think that it is something that we need to speak more of and just educate everyone on. So I really appreciate have, having to have been a part of this podcast and listening to everyone's stories and all of your education on the topic. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Any, Absolutely. Um, in any statements on how um, we can support you, uh, follow you or follow your work? Um, if you're in Massachusetts, stop by the lounge, you know, and, and just, you know, um, yeah, get to get, I, you know, I feel like social media, all this stuff, it just disconnects us from each other, you know, and, and when you get to sit down across from someone and really connect with them, then you, you get to, you get to understand who they are. Right. And, and I think that's more important than anything, you know, um, what else? Also, uh, yeah, that's about it. You know, I, 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 I'm really grateful for Artie and Andy. I mean, you guys have been amazing, whether it was a panel a couple of weeks ago, this podcast, I'm just so thrilled that, you know, like I left the recovery world because I got so fed up with the funding and, and dealing with that whole profit margin off of people's sickness, you know, and, and I, um, I respect you guys for still fighting the good fight. Awesome. Awesome. Andrew. And also Kyle, um, what, what's the name of um, the, 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 the spot again? Lounge. Yeah. The lounge. The summit lounge. Oh, the summit lounge. Okay, cool. So it's actually a physical place that you can visit. Yeah. 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 We are. Uh, we're open right now. There are people smoking there chilling right now. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought yeah, it was, it's a, cool. thought yeah, it was so a nonprofit. Yeah. So we're, we're a private membership association. So we're a 501 C seven. So uh, we're organized for the intellectual and social enrichment of our members. We're open uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then we do a lot of private events as well, but yeah, you can come in, smoke, hang out, meet people, grab a milkshake. It's, it's a pretty cool environment. 
Wow. I missed all of that. Wow. A nonprofit <laughs> where you can smoke and do all of that. Next up, Andrew, and we'll get, um, let's see, we'll get um, Maggie back since she popped back in. Any um, closing remarks, um, Andrew, anything that you would like yeah, to share? I think uh, was that what, what people should do is we have to pay more attention to the layer of government that most people don't know anything about, and that's their county commissioners, their sheriffs. When when somebody's running for sheriff, they're running because they think they're Wyatt Earp, but they're also jail administrators, and we have to hold their feet to the fire. We have to hold the feet to the legislature in the fire on bail reform, because as Kyle said, most people in jail are there because they're poor. Uh, some of them commit crimes, some of them commit bad crimes, but they're there because they're poor, not because of their crime, because they can't even pay a nominal bail. And so uh, that's the 10 million people who go through jails. Uh, most of them are there because they're poor. Thank you. Thank you. I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Kyle. I'm going to get Maggie um, video started. Go I, ahead. Lost, I lost my train of thought there, but I really wanted to hammer that home as well. Both Artie and Andy both talked about the local level. You know, we get so focused on national politics. We forget what's really important. And the people that make decisions in your community you elect, you know, and if you're not happy with your representation, you can vote, you can run, you can change that on the local level. And that's where stuff starts, you know, and that, and that's what we really need to focus on is, is, you know, these small local elections, whether it's the, the sheriff, the city councilors, the mayor, stuff like that, where you can really make a difference. You know, it's, it's, we're one out of a hundred million that vote in the national elections, there's only three, you know, at Worcester, we were looking at this the other day with one of my friends. It's it's a it's a swing vote of like 300 votes to get the mayor in office, you know. So it's like you can really have an effect if you can community organize in your community to really benefit. So that's that's I, I love that you both brought that up. That's that's the stuff that matters. Wow. You know, I love that picture that creates that marijuana cannabis is a local election topic. That is a big deal. So a question from Jamelia. In the states with heavy regulations, are you seeing spikes in selling outside of the new system or can you tell? And we may have to get, um, I was struggling with that question. Do you guys understand that question? Jamelia, you want to um, speak that question? Okay. I was you know, like before everything came into place, there are people out selling outside of the, I mean, there is no system in some states. So everybody does what they do. But in the states where they're trying to change it over, when you were talking about the heavy regulations, you just went over to the different, you know, location four hours away. But in that state with the heavy regulations, are you seeing a spike of people just doing it their way? Or can you even tell if there's any impact? It's, um, so it's interesting, right? It's, uh, it's, it's and this is this is one of the topics that's very little talked about, you know, and, and I'm and I'm, uh, you know, I sold, you know, I'll be honest, I've, I've sold weed my entire life. Right. Whether it was legal or illegal. Right. And, you know, and now I choose not to break the law once since I went four hours away. Right. But you there's still that underground community. Right. Where you can, we, you know, you can go down the street and purchase it off of someone that you've been purchasing it off of for the last 10 or 20 years. Right. Granted, it's untested. It's unregulated. You don't really know what you're getting, you know, but that's worked for 20 years, you know. So there's still that happening. But the the issue that I see with the with the industry on top of everything else we've talked about is that a lot of times those people that are selling cannabis on the black market are doing it 
to provide for their families, right? They're, they're not doing it to get rich. The, the dude that's selling you an eighth on the corner isn't doing it to get rich. He's doing it to put food on the table, right? And through legalization, you know, we're saying it's legal, but we're not providing economic opportunities for those individuals because we're, we're in fact unemploying them, right? We're unemploying them because now oh. you can go to a, a, a dispensary down the street and purchase an eighth for $15. He can't compete with that. You know, so he's out of work and and we're not replacing that income to that vulnerable population that might not be able to get work elsewhere. You know, whether they're, you know, recidivism, all that, where it's criminal justice reform, we're taking economic through legalization. It's it's funny. I have I have a friend who came from California and he talks a lot about this legalization was like the like you pull back the curtain thinking you're going to get a bouquet of flowers and you get a tiger that's ready to eat you, you know, and, and no one saw it coming, but it, it's, it's disheartening to say the least. Um, but yeah, there is, there are still people that choose to sell on the black market and um, they're just few and far between, because like I said, these stores are popping up everywhere and they're just pricing them out of the market. Thank you. Thank you for that call. Maggie, welcome back. Um, we were just kind of wrapping up and giving closing remarks we went around the room and we were just kind of talking about any last thoughts you would like to share based on anything that you didn't get a chance to share, how the followers or the people, the listeners can follow you and support the work you're doing. Go ahead, Maggie. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm super excited to be here, but really I wanted to highlight uh, Andy, Artie and Kyle and like their experience in this topic. Um, so I think I got to say everything I wanted to say. Um, I apologize for my glitchy video. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, you can go to coyotecannabisco.com and you can, you know, subscribe and just follow our progress. And we have our, uh, social media. So we're on Instagram, coyote canna and, um, you know, just stay tuned for that and, um, share, you know, the information that you've heard today from, um, everyone about just like what's happening. I think, I think have these conversations, have them with your legislators, have them with your um, your local representatives, have them have them in the town. Talk to your sheriff like um, so. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I would like to say thank you to our panelists for being here tonight. Thank you to Maggie for bringing together and sharing her network of helping us understand a topic that is quite complicated. Thank you for Kyle. Um, give that man a podcast. He is ready, y'all. Throw him a curveball. He will hit it out the park. <laughs> Thank you, Artie, for the work that you're doing and the insight on the states that are continuing to begin to do some positive work in the communities of the justice-impacted individuals. Thank you for the work that your organization is doing to begin to help educate and reform individuals in a safe way, in an appropriate way. And I'm looking forward to the work you guys are doing. Andrew, thank you for your passion, your excitement, your research, and the work that you're putting in to just help us see what others don't show us. The hidden things that we all can be too busy to see so we look forward to seeing you guys. And Kyle, if we're up north, we'll stop by the nonprofit. Thank you for being here at Southern Soul. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. 
If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience. 